Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Turn in your Bible to John chapter 1, if you would, please. 1948, it was a remarkable year because a phenomenon began to happen in California, actually in Hollywood, when a young evangelist began to preach. The crowds were sparse at first. Uh, They weren't very large, uh, but he continued to preach, and as he continued to preach, more and more people began to come. And soon, some of the Hollywood elites began to attend this meeting where this young evangelist was preaching in a tent, no less, and uh, some of them came to believe on the Lord Jesus. When they did, the press got a hold of that. It became a special point of interest to the press, and they began to send reporters to investigate and interview this this young preacher who was dressed in pistachio-colored suits with bright red ties, who spoke with a very pronounced Southern accent, uh, accent, excuse me, who, who, uh, yeah, there was no accident. Uh, he had an accent, and, um, and the masses were just drawn to this young preacher who was preaching in a tent in Hollywood, California. And it was obvious that God was doing something. Now, the young man, I'm sure you've all figured out, was Billy Graham. And, uh, and he affected our nation. Now, let's go back to the first century, to around 34 AD. And we have another young preacher come on the scene. Um, he's just inauspicious as Billy Graham uh, would be centuries later. But he also would grab the entire attention of, of the nation of Israel. He too dressed rather strangely. I don't know if pistachio colored suits with bright red ties was, was strange, but it sounds like it probably was back then. But this guy was, this young preacher back in 34 AD, he was dressed just as strangely maybe as Billy Graham was for his day. Uh, his name was John the Baptist. Now place yourself in his sandals. You uh, are going to wear a camel a camel fur uh, outfit, and uh, you are going to have a leather belt on, and you are going to call the nation of Israel back to God, and you're going to announce to them that the soon coming king, the Messiah, is to be revealed. You don't even know when he's coming. You don't know exactly how he's going to be revealed, although you do have an idea it has something to do with what you're doing right now. You, you preach in the wilderness. Uh, people have to come to hear you preach. I mean, you don't go into the city where they are. You, they have to come out to hear you. You've never performed a miracle. No one's ever drawn to you because of the miraculous thing you do. And, and the message that you're preaching is one of, you know, it's not a fun message. It's basically repent and prepare and get ready because the king is coming. I don't know if I've mentioned the guy's name yet, but his name was, he's, he was called John, the son of Zechariah, or John the baptizer, as we call him today. And he was a remarkable man. I told you this last week, but Jesus said of, of John the baptizer that there's not been a greater man. And, and, and I'm going to assume that that's in that period of time. Maybe, maybe it's all of, all of um, 
all time, you know. But Jesus says there's never been a man born of woman greater than, than John the baptizer was. Even Herod, who would eventually put him to death, and John would, you know, call Herod out for his sin. Even Herod had remarkable respect for, for John the baptizer. We read that in Mark 6. By any standard, he was unique. He dressed strangely, as I said, wearing a camel fur and and a leather belt, not something that the normal Israelite did in his day. Most had tunics and cloth belts. Uh, His diet consisted of eating locusts and wild honey. I'm assuming that was kind of strange. He kept the Nazarite vow, which meant he never drank wine, which would have been a common staple of that day, and he didn't cut his hair. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, while yet in his mother's womb in Luke chapter 1. And he was a man of prayer who taught his disciples to pray, Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 11. Most certainly, John had been the talk of the town when he was born. You remember, he was born to really old parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and they had not been able to have children. I am pretty sure they thought they never would have children, and yet Zacharias is working in the holy place, a place, or maybe even the holy of holies, when Gabriel shows up to him and says, hey, guess what? God's chosen you, and you're going to have a son, and you remember Zacharias doesn't believe it, and uh, he says, well, how do I know this is true? And the angel Gabriel says to him, he says, well, I tell you what, you're not going to say another word until he's born, and so for the next nine months, Zacharias can't speak. I love this story. I don't know why I love this, the ending of that story or that part of it anyway, when you remember John is born and his mother is telling everybody that his name is John. And everybody is saying, his name can't be John. You don't have any Johns in your family. Why would you name him John? And so they turn to Zacharias and they say, your crazy wife's trying to name your son John and there's no family name. What's his name? And you remember Zacharias took out something to write on and he said, his name is John. And when he wrote that, then of course God gave him his talk back and he was able to uh, he was able to speak again I, I, I don't know why that last part I just love it you know John just correcting all those people that are abusing his wife so but John the baptizer would have been the talk of the town because he was born to such old parents who evidently by natural means they, they would have thought there's no way this couple would ever have a child and they wouldn't have evidently God God supernaturally John was not supernaturally born like Jesus was but but his birth was supernatural and then the Bible says God intervenes and opens her womb so that she can conceive and John is born when John began to preach the Bible tells us that large numbers of people went out to hear him for instance, in Mark 1.5, it says people from all over Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Jesus said of John, he was a lamp that was burning and shining, and you wanted to rejoice greatly for a short time in his light. Evidently, there was just something about John that people wanted to go and hear him, and his popularity was just growing, even after his death. You remember John's ministry and his message reached far and wide. Again, I told you some of this last week, but, but Peter, I didn't tell you this, Peter uses John's words to defend his actions in going to Cornelius' house. You remember how he went to Cornelius' house and he's being accused of stepping into a Gentile's home and, and then baptizing them, and they're like, how can you do that? And this is what Peter says. He says, I remember how John used to say, and then he goes on to talk about how John quoted, or John would say that Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he said, when I saw that Jesus did this for Cornelius, why in the world? would we not baptize them with water? 
So Peter's quoting John. Paul would quote John in his ministry. In Acts 13, 24, he would say, but before Jesus came, John was telling everyone in Israel to turn back to God and to be baptized. So John's message, even after John died, his message just continued to go on and on. We talked about Apollos last week. Do you remember Apollos? He was the guy that was out preaching in Ephesus the, the message of John the Baptist. So Apollos, greatly affected by John's message, obviously left Jerusalem before Jesus came on the scene. He goes out and all throughout the world of his day, he's preaching John's message to the Jews. Get ready. Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. Get ready. Prepare your hearts. And, uh, and so when Priscilla and Aquila find him, they say, they say Apollos, look, you, he's already come. And Apollos becomes this great follower of Jesus and this great preacher of the good news that Jesus had come. And then when Paul comes to Ephesus, he finds some men who are just followers of John. They've never even heard of Jesus. And he tells them about Jesus and they become followers of Jesus. John's popularity did not come by catering to his audience he didn't have a great church building in Jerusalem. He didn't have any kind of programs for, for people, no, no food, free meals, no child care, none of that kind of stuff. In fact, everybody came out to see John, and it wasn't because of the miracles that he was doing. He, never did, he didn't do a single miracle that's recorded for us in the Bible. In fact, it says that he did not do that. The only thing John ever got right, miraculously, if you would, would be that he recognized Jesus and pointed him out to people. So that, there's something miraculous in that. Luke writes about John that he didn't become popular by being really sensitive to people either. His, his message was very confrontational. He did not fear men. He did not fear religious, the religious folks of his day. So when they came out in chapter 3 of Luke, verse 7, he says, he began to say to the crowds who were coming to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore bear, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say of, to yourselves, we are Abraham, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God could take these stones and raise up children to Abraham. Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He didn't, he didn't, he wasn't preaching this feel good message to, to the religious folks, right? Or to people who were coming. Some of those people he was preaching to were actually Pharisees. And he didn't fear the cultural elites either. John's message wasn't just to the Jews, repent and turn to God in faith. That wasn't just his message. His message to Herod publicly was, you need to repent because what you and your wife have done, she's the divorced wife of his brother. You are in sin. You're committing adultery. You need, you need to repent. And you remember that Herod had him arrested for that. And, his, and Herod's wife, his brother's former brother's wife, uh, she would eventually finagle and manipulate things. Things until Herod would put John to death because of his pride, because of his lust. In, uh, in verses 6 and 8 that we looked at last week, you remember John the Apostle, the writer of our Gospel of John. By the way, if you happen to be a first-time guest this morning, we've begun a study of John's Gospel, which is the fourth book of the New Testament. And we're studying through that. We began, began three weeks ago. And so uh, last week we were talking about John the Apostle, the writer, introduces John the Baptizer. And you remember that John the Apostle says this man was sent by God. He was on a mission for God. He wasn't the Messiah. He was the spotlight to point to the true light that is the, the, Lord, the Lord Jesus. 
So this morning, we actually begin John the Apostle's recording of the ministry of Jesus. He's actually going to start with the testimony of John the baptizer. So that's what we're, we're going to look at this morning, and that's the reason for all this introductory material about John, because we're going to look at, at what he had to say about Jesus as the actual earthly ministry of Jesus begins. Now, the text before us this morning is, is going to begin with a, with a question and, and an answer to the question. And the question is, are you the Messiah? Are you this king, this anointed king that we've all been looking for? So look with, your, look with me at your Bibles, verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. Your Bible may say Christ. Messiah is Jewish. Christ is is Greek. They're the same word. It means anointed king. Are you the anointed king? Now, this was a time of high expectancy for Messiah to come. You know, the Jews, they could do the math, and Daniel's prophecy concerning coming of Messiah put it around this time. And so many were looking for the coming of Messiah. In fact, many capitalized on this and began to say that they were the Messiah. Numerous men had been put to death in this time period, claiming to be Messiah. They'd been put to death by Rome, by crucifixion. So even though John readily admitted all along that he's not the anointed king, people were speculating, maybe he's he's this anointed king, this Messiah, this Christ that we've been looking for. Maybe it's him. And so they sent some of the priests out to ask him, are you the Messiah? And so implied in his answer is they asked that question. Uh, the spiritual and secular leadership, they want to know, are you Messiah? And John clearly says, I am not he. Verse 21, they asked him then a second question, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, why would they ask if John is Elijah? Well, the answer is because in the Old Testament, in the, in the prophet Malachi, there is a prediction that before Messiah comes, God is going to send the prophet Elijah. And so in Malachi 3, it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And then in Malachi 4, 5 through 6, Malachi continues, Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So based on that prophecy, they're asking asking John the baptizer, okay, we get it, you're not the king, but are you Elijah? Are, Are you the reincarnation? Are you the coming again of Elijah from the Old Testament? Is that who you are? And he says, no, I'm not. Well, there's something we really need to address here because, and it's a bit confusing because Jesus says that he is. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus says when he's talking to the crowd concerning John, who I believe at this point has already been murdered by Herod, he says, and if you care to accept it, John himself is Elijah who is to come. And so Jesus claims that John is the fulfillment of what Malachi chapter 4 uh, proclaimed. So how, how, do we, how do we see that? Is, is John Elijah uh, or is he not? Well, the answer is both. John is not literally Elijah. John is not literally the reincarnation or the coming back to life. God did not raise Elijah back to life, and, and that's who John is. That's not what John says very clearly. That's not me. But Jesus is saying that John 
is the fulfillment of that promise in that John is coming in the spirit of Elijah, that John is coming with that same sort of authoritarian, authoritative voice from God, preparing the way for Messiah to come. John is the fulfillment of what God promised back in Malachi. Now, there is a, it's kind of neat. You know, did you know that Elijah dressed in fur with a leather belt? And so even though, John, uh, even though John claims not to be Elijah, and he's not the literal Elijah, I think even John understood that he is the fulfillment of the promise that God made that Elijah would come. And, and so Jesus said, if you're able to understand this, John is the fulfillment of what God promised back in Malachi 4. So they go on and ask next, they say, are you the prophet? And they answered, no. He answered, no. So what is this? In Deuteronomy 18, 15, we have this prediction by Moses. And, we re- and I'll read it for you. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. I will raise up a prophet from among your countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so the Jews had been looking for this prophet too, this guy that Moses says is coming and he's going to be like me. And so they've been looking for him and and they didn't, you know, they don't know is the prophet Messiah or are they the same? Obviously in their mind, they're, they're not convinced they are. And so they ask him, are you that prophet that Moses said is coming? And and John says, uh, no, I'm not. Now, all of us have the advantage of looking back. We're looking back on history. We're not looking forward into what we don't see. We're looking back on what we see. And we know that today Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that Moses made or that God made through Moses that another prophet would come. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And and he's also the the Messiah. So all of that, that's the same person. The prophet of Moses' writings and the prophet uh, of Elijah's and Isaiah's writings, they, they are all the same man. They are all the anointed king. They are all the Lord Jesus. But John says, I, I'm not that prophet. You remember, remember John the apostle said in his writings that, that through Moses came the law, but through Jesus came grace in our understanding of God, truth. And, and so in this sense, you know, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet, not John. So now they're a bit frustrated. Look at verse 22 in the story as it continues. Then they said to him, who are you then so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What, what do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way as the prophet, as Isaiah the prophet said. So John paraphrase, paraphrases Isaiah 40 verse 3 and he says, I am, I am what we read in Isaiah. I am the voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way, which is exactly what Elijah was going to do in that earlier prophecy. And so, uh, you know, John the baptizer comes and he is the voice saying in the wilderness, come everybody, get ready, get ready because the king is coming. Now John's answer, I think, is twofold or has twofold application for them. One, it gives them what to report back to Jerusalem and to to the high priest and all those people in leadership. But he's also, I believe, in earnest, inviting them to repent inviting them to get ready, inviting them to prepare their hearts for the coming king. So now they ask another question, verse 24. Now they had been sent uh, from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah nor the prophet? 
Why are you doing what you're doing, John? We don't get it. Why are you doing? Now, baptism was a purification rite for Gentiles. Now, let's say I'm a Gentile. I'm not Jewish. And and I've come to believe in Jehovah. I've come to believe in the Jewish God. And I've come to believe that he's the creator and he's the one true and only God. And I want to follow him. Well, the Jews had purification rites for me as a Gentile to begin to follow Jehovah. And one of those, part of those rites were to be baptized with water. And so they're asking the question, why are you uh, baptizing Israel as a demonstration of their repentance? And I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. But I, I think they're asking, why are you baptizing Jews? In other words, not why are you baptizing, but why are you baptizing Jews? We don't understand that. We get it. If they'd been Gentiles, we don't understand this thing of baptizing Jews. So... And, and we'll talk about that in just a second as to why I think he's doing that. But, but what I want you to notice is that John really doesn't answer their question. He doesn't really answer their question as to why he's baptizing. Instead, what he does is he points them to Jesus. Everything about John is always pointing people to Jesus. And that's what he does right here. Later on, he'll say, I must, you, you finish it, I must what? decrease and he must increase. And so when his disciples are just so upset for John the baptizer that his popularity is waning and people are not coming out to the wilderness to be baptized by him anymore, and now they're going over to Jesus, his disciples are like, man, this is upsetting. And that's when John says, listen, everybody, I must decrease because I've done my job. He must increase. And so here's what John says to them in verse 26. He answered them and he said, I baptize in water. Notice he does not say why. I I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. He doesn't really focus on why he's doing what he's doing, but instead he takes them to what Jesus is going to do. And before I talk about that, let me speculate on why John is baptizing Jews. Everybody understand their question? I really believe their question is, why are you baptizing Jews? Nobody baptized Jews. You don't have to baptize Jews because Jews are God's chosen people. I believe that he is baptizing Jews because he is trying to say to them and to us today that there is a difference between biological, natural Israel and spiritual Israel. There is a difference between the two Israels. Israel in the flesh, or Israel sons of Abraham by birth, they're one thing. They were God's chosen people, but but they're not God's chosen saved people because God's chosen saved people are always those people who put their faith in him. And so he's making a distinction and saying to the Jews, just because you're born Jewish, that's not what it's all about. It's about by faith, you following God. And those of you that are not following God, you need to repent and you need to be baptized just like a Gentile would. You need to be baptized and and, and repent and be cleansed of your sin. And so he's making this clear distinction for them. But he goes on and he really doesn't focus on that. He says, I baptize with water, but one who's coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He doesn't say that in in this context. He'll say it the next day. If we were to look up the other gospels uh, to their corollaries, we would find that he said this often. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John was always telling people that Jesus was greater than him that Jesus was the exalted one. In this text, he says, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. 
Now hear what John is saying. John is saying, I'm not worthy to be his lowest of slaves because that's what the lowest slaves did. And so when he said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal, he's literally saying to everybody, I'm not, I'm not worthy to be his lowest servant. That's how great Jesus is. And then he tells the Pharisees, he says, he's standing here among you. And I don't think he means that he's standing right there in the group that day, although he could have been. I think he would have pointed him out. Instead, he just simply is saying, Jesus is here, guys. He's among us already. Now, John the Apostle moves in his story to the next day. And the next day, John the baptizer will be down there at the river again, preaching his message of repentance and turning from sin and and being baptized as a symbol or a sign of your cleansing and your, your heart change. He'll be down there doing that. And this day, however, he sees Jesus. He sees the Messiah King and he points him out. Verse 29, the next day. He, that would be John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. There he goes again. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He on whom you see the Holy Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now, This is the next day John sees Jesus. But here's what I want you to understand. This is not the first time John sees Jesus. In fact, six weeks earlier, John baptized Jesus. You remember the story. John John the Apostle doesn't record the story for us. But six weeks prior to this, John baptizes baptizes Jesus. And and now he's seeing seeing him again. Now, after he baptized him, does anybody remember what happened? Interactive, somebody answer me. What happened after he was baptized? He went to the wilderness for 40 days, six weeks, right? So, so this is my speculation. The text doesn't say this, but I think this is the first time John the baptizer is seeing Jesus since he baptized him. And I think Jesus is coming out of the wilderness and he comes back to John. And John sees him. And this time he says, there, behold, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, notice that in the text, let's talk about this because this, is, this has always troubled me a little bit. In verse 29 through verse 34, John says, you know, I didn't recognize him. And here's the question I've always asked myself. How is it that John doesn't recognize Jesus? I mean, John has heard the stories his entire life. He's the cousin of Jesus. He's six months older than Jesus. Most likely, throughout their childhood, every, every year, at least it seems like every year, Jesus and his family, that would be his extended family, they would travel to Jerusalem for Passover. John and Jesus, most likely as children, played together. They played together growing up. They heard the stories. You know, how is it that John says, you know, prior to the baptism, I didn't, I didn't recognize him. You know, what did he mean by that? Because that doesn't make sense to me how he could not recognize him. What I want to suggest to you that John means here in this text 
is that he did not recognize Jesus as the Son of God until that moment. In other words, he recognized him as the anointed king. He recognized him as the Messiah. But you remember at the baptism, something happens that's special. And you remember that in the baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down, and in a voice from heaven, God says, so that John hears, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Or, and this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well, and whom I'm well please. And I want to suggest, and this, this helped me, I want to suggest that when John says, I didn't recognize him, I think he's saying, I didn't recognize him for who he was. I knew he was my cousin. I knew, I knew he was the Messiah, but I didn't recognize, I did not recognize that he was the son of, son of God. What John didn't What John didn't know maybe was that he was the son of God. But what John says about Jesus here in front of all of this crowd is is worthy for us to take note. Now notice that John calls Jesus, you see it? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now Jesus has lots of titles in the Bible. Uh, Somebody enumerated 150 titles given to Jesus. Titles like the bread of life, the son of man, uh, the son of God, chief shepherd, cornerstone, and on and on we could go. But I want to suggest you listen. I think this might be the most significant title given to our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, for an unchurched Gentile, that title probably wouldn't mean much. But for the Jews of that day and that time, the connotations of what of what John said were instantaneous. Lamb taking away sin. They would have understood that John is saying in some way, in some form, in some fashion, Jesus is a sacrificial lamb. They would have understood that. And that's exactly what John says. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they would have understood by his sacrifice. Now, the idea of animal sacrifice, it, it's, it's woven all throughout the Old Testament. It starts in Genesis 3 when the animals are killed and made clothes for Adam and Eve. We find it in Abel and Cain's sacrifice, where Cain's sacrifice is not acceptable to God. God wanted an animal sacrifice. Why? Because from the very get-go, God is, God is making this picture for us to see that one could die instead of another. That one, one, the animals that died, they were, they were pictures of God's forgiveness of sin, one dying for another. And so in Exodus 12, when, when they're getting out of Egypt, you remember the sacrificial lamb, how his blood is put on the doorpost? And that was to symbolize to them that, that that animal was dying for them. When the laws of the sacrifice were codified in Leviticus 1 through 7, a lamb was specifically designated as, a, as an acceptable sacrifice for a peace offering for a sin offering, for a guilt offering. Here's the point. Don't don't miss the point of the Old Testament sacrifices. They were to help you and me understand that one could die for another, that someone could die for me, that someone could die for you. The wages of sin, and follow me on this if you would, and I'm almost finished, so if, if you're getting antsy, I'm almost done. The wages of sin is death. And God illustrated that through the death of animals, a visual picture, if you would, that it was possible for one to bear the death of another. The life of the sacrificial animal was a picture of someone. Every time they sacrificed the animal, it was the picture of someone dying for each of us. And by the way, here's why we don't sacrifice anymore, because we don't need any pictures to point us to the Lamb of God 
who took away the sins of the world. The wages of sin is death. Because of my sin, I will die. And because of your sin, you will die. There is none righteous but Jesus, so we all die. But the Bible says there's coming a resurrection of all men. All men are going to return back to life. David, you're going to die one day, but you'll return back to life. All of us will. The righteous and the unrighteous will all be resurrected. The Bible says it over and over and over again. We'll all be raised back to life, and we're going to be raised to stand at the judgment bar of God. We'll all be made alive. And here's what the Bible says. He says, every man who has, has okay, let me, I got ahead of myself. At that judgment, one of two things are going to happen. First, those who put their faith in God and have believed in him and have sought him diligently, okay, that's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, those who believe in him and have diligently sought him, they will be given eternal life and become forever, and, and they will become forever, never to die again, a part of God's kingdom. Now, the reason they won't die, this, this is why we needed a sacrificial person to die for us, because the wages of my sin is death. And the reason I needed somebody to die for me because the, the wages of my sin is death. Jesus died my death for me. Yes, now it's appointed for every man to die. But at the judgment, everybody who's put their faith in Jesus, they will never die again. The death of Jesus pays the death of their sin. And they do not die again. And, and the Bible says that God's space in heaven is going to join our space here on earth. We've got it backwards. We're always trying to take our space to his space. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God's space is going to join our space down here. And Jesus will forever be our king. Now, the second thing that's going to happen at the judgment is those who did not trust in God, then the wages of their sin will stand. And Revelation says they'll be cast into the lake of fire that God says represents the second death. They'll die the second time, but this time there is no resurrection. This time death is eternal. This time no one is raised from that death. They're, they're on the broad road that leads to destruction and they will be destroyed and God will destroy both their body and their soul in Gehenna, in the valley of Henna forever. So if you're following me, and I hope you are, the title that was given to Jesus here by John, the Lamb of God who takes, the way, takes away the sin of the world is so powerful. Jesus is the sacrifice who died so that you and I don't have to die forever, so that my death is not permanent. I will rise from the dead. And I know some of you are thinking that's hocus pocus and all the rest, but I'm telling you, that is our hope. And it's the hope of every New Testament writer that we shall rise again. And so the apostle Paul says, he says, listen, he says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, you might as well eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die and that's the end of you. But there is a resurrection from the dead. There is a resurrection from the dead. And those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus, those who are following Jesus, God will not only give their life back to them, but he will give their life back to them forever and ever and ever. And they shall no more die. And not only will they no more die, they shall live with God in a glorified world that's made right again. In the, in the book of Revelation, God says, behold, I am making all things new. 
Everything's going to be changed and everything's going to be made right and you will rise to walk in. In fact, you're not going to walk in. If Malachi is telling the truth, you're going to skip in like a calf that's been, in, that's been locked up for a while. You're going to skip out into the new kingdom like a newborn calf. That's what it's going to be like. That's what it's going to be like. Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away my sin. Now, yes, it's appointed for man, every man to die. We're all going to die. Nobody, nobody is not going to die. Well, I take that back. The Bible says, excuse me, I stand corrected. We will, no one will live, everyone will die prior to the return of Jesus. Because the Bible does say when Jesus comes, some of us won't be dead and we'll be changed in an instant. But, but, but barring that, all of us are going to die, but yet we shall rise again. And we will rise because Jesus rose again. Are you following me? That's why, the, that's why the title, the Lamb of God, is so powerful. Jesus is my sacrifice so that I will live forever. You know this, you know this passage from Isaiah, but humor me and let me just read it to you. you just, just listen as I read. This is Isaiah 53. It was written centuries before Jesus came on the scene. But it is, it is Jesus, the Lamb of God. Listen. Jesus. We, we know it's Jesus. The Jews didn't know it was Jesus. We know it's Jesus. So allow me, if you would, some license. And it says, he was despised. I'm going to put Jesus' name there. Jesus was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused Jimmy's iniquity to fall on Jesus and your iniquity to fall on Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth, but oppression and judgment he has taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. When I read this this morning, let me interject what I felt like the Lord put on my heart. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, Jesus rendered himself as Jimmy's guilt offering. Jesus rendered himself as your guilt offering. He did it voluntarily. He emptied himself. He, he chose to do this. He rendered himself as a guilt offering for us. And God says, and he will see his offspring. I am his offspring. You are his offspring if you are a follower of Jesus. You are his offspring, and, you, and he will prolong his days. God prolonged the days of Jesus by raising him from the dead. He didn't stay in the grave but 39 hours, and God raised him back to life. 
and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Jesus ever stepped onto our planet, Isaiah was prophesying that Jesus would be the Lamb of God who would go silently to the cross and bear our sins there. In the book of Revelation, we read this, chapter 5, verse 12, and in a loud voice they said, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And all of those Old Testament sacrifices are telling us that Jesus would die for us, that he would bear in his life our death so that we would live again and forever. The great hymn writer Charles Wesley, brother to John Wesley, penned these words, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This next verse, if you don't know your Old Testament, it's going to be hard to follow. We don't even include it in, in the modern version of the hymn, but Charles wrote, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depth of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What can we learn from John the baptizer? Four quick things. Number one, treasure Jesus. John treasured Jesus. He exalted Jesus. He promoted Jesus. He said, I'm not worthy to be the lowest of servants for Jesus. I, I challenge you to follow John the baptizer's example and treasure Jesus. Exalt Jesus. Lift him up. What can you learn from John the baptizer? Find your real identity in Christ. John didn't care what you thought of him. All John cared about was being faithful to Jesus. One of the things that Nick Rickon heard from countless believers in the persecuted world, they don't care about anything but pleasing Jesus. They find their identity completely in Jesus. Now, don't, don't be weird just to be weird. But I'm telling you, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be different than the culture. You've got to make a choice. Follow Jesus or follow culture. It's one or the other. It can't be both. Culture and Jesus, they pretty much don't line up. 
Love the culture, but love Jesus more and follow Jesus. Treasure Jesus. Find your identity in Jesus. Serve the Lord with humility and boldness. Don't be afraid of culture. Don't be afraid of men. I say this, and I'm just as afraid as you are. But let's not fear men. Let's, let's not be afraid. Let's not be afraid to stand for Jesus. And finally, be like John. Put your whole trust in the Lord Jesus. Put your whole trust in the Lord Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.